I think the other thing that I realized is that I cared a lot about self-responsibility in a lot of organizations that I worked at. If I worked incredibly hard uh, and put in 120% every single day, it wouldn't really make an impact on the organization. And then on the flip side, if I called in sick to work every single day, it also probably wouldn't make an impact on the organization. And so I really wanted to be in an environment where my presence and effort that I put in actually made a, a, a real impact on how that company or that, that project performed. And there was actual responsibility and consequences for not doing well. Okay, welcome back everyone. Today we have a special guest, the founder and co-founder and CEO of Rudder, Peter. So welcome to the show, man. Thanks a lot for having me, man. Great to be here. Yeah, it was actually cool meeting you uh, in San Fran a couple weeks back. So that was a, a nice little, I guess, precursor to the podcast, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I remember meeting you, having to just bike all, all the way there and just <laughs> being really scared because I came by just super sweaty, but, um, nah, that's cool, yeah, man. Good, good first interaction. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. So, um, you know how I always like to start off the podcast is to kind of understand your early years and your influences that made you Peter, the person, but also Peter, the entrepreneur, because I think it's really in, important to understand how an individual got to the point that they are in their career today. So, could you maybe describe and help us kind of go through some of those early day influences that maybe help promote you on the pathway to entrepreneurship? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'll actually take a step back and, and just say, like, I, I definitely wasn't interested in entrepreneurship from the moment I was born. Uh, it's definitely been a thing that, that has changed gradually over time. Uh, and so when I actually went to college and throughout all of high school, I actually really wanted to be a chemistry major. Um, I think part of that was uh, chemistry was something that I was really good at, like sciences and, and bio and chem uh, were uh, subjects that I excelled at at school. So uh, maybe I liked it because I did well in those subjects. Uh, and then my mom was also a professor. Uh, she's a professor in pharmacology at Rutgers. And so definitely got a lot of influence uh, from parents there as well. Uh, and so started uh, very early college and all of high school, very deep in sciences and, and kind of wanted to be a doctor or professor growing up. Uh, and then only going through the college experience, did I actually make that shift over into entrepreneurship? Um, so there's a lot to unpack there. I'm happy to dig into wherever you want me to go. Yeah, I think that's the important thing that I want to kind of talk to you about is, you know, having originally said that you were thinking about having a career and pursuing a career in science, what made you kind of take that leap over and say, you know, maybe this is not the right fit? And how did you evaluate that decision um, as you kind of went through school and th that process as a whole? Yeah, um, I, I think the light bulb moment for me. So um, there, there's one moment that I very distinctly remember just having interned at a lab prior to starting college uh, and uh, interned at this at this biochem laboratory. And we're running this test on this thing called the Western blot, where basically um, you have this gel uh, and you're trying to see the presence of certain compounds in, in some liquid that you're analyzing. And so you put that liquid into the gel. 
the different compounds in that liquid separate in the gel uh, as, as the liquid flows up the gel. And so by seeing all the different bands that separate from, from that compound, you can see like what elements are, or what chemicals are inside that, that initial liquid. Um, I, I distinctly remember doing that uh, as an intern and actually thinking to myself, wow, this is, this is not even uh, an analogy to watching paint dry. We are just actually watching paint dry here. Uh, and I think that that's the moment that I was like, this is probably not the right career for me if I wanted to do something that's a lot faster paced and a lot more exciting. Um, I think the other thing that I realized is that I cared a lot about self-responsibility. Um, so I, I felt many times through different internships uh, or, or working at different places that uh, in, in a lot of organizations that I worked at, if I worked incredibly hard uh, and put in 120% every single day, it wouldn't really make an impact on the organization. And then on the flip side, if I called in sick to work every single day, it also probably wouldn't make an impact on the organization. And so I really wanted to be in an environment where my presence and effort that I put in actually made a, a, a real impact on how that company or that, that project performed. And there was actual responsibility and consequences for not doing well. Uh, and so that just tended towards uh, going with smaller companies. Yeah, no, I think that's a, you know, a valuable insight. A lot of individuals who work in a corporate environment might say, hey, I want to work in a startup as well. But they don't kind of do that kind of, uh, say, introspective of like, I've worked in this environment where there's a lot of process and kind of structure. Now I want to make that shift into startup world where there is literally no process, no structure. And so kind of going back to your point there of, how you made that evaluation, like, I want to be more responsible, be more accountable, and see my work kind of produce something. I think that's really powerful. One thing I like to maybe step back on is, you know, as basically Asians, I'm South Asian, you're East Asian. Mm -hmm. um, we have this kind of influence from our parents to go in these specific careers. And, you know, where do you feel like some of that cultural impact uh, throughout your life has kind of played a role in your entrepreneurship journey, but how, also how is it kind of, you know, you as an entrepreneur now played into the narrative of how you talk to your parents and stuff like that. And that this is the career I chose. I'm not, a, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an accountant yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So uh, I'll, those are very meaty subjects. So I'll dig into the first one, which is how has uh, that, that Asian influence played into my career. And then I think the second question was, um, how do I reconcile that now that I'm an entrepreneur and not yeah. the, the initial careers that my parents thought I would be? Got it. Yeah. Um, so I, I think uh, the first thing that I want to acknowledge is that like, definitely, I think, uh, especially for, for Asian parents, the way that they think about careers is a lot different than the way that you or I would think about it now. And I wouldn't say that the way they think about it is is wrong. It it more represents a different time. So when my, my parents, uh, they were first generation immigrants. They moved here when they were like 20 or so. Um, for them, career was all about stability and making sure that they could set the foundation for me or, or, or the children that they had. Uh, and so they cared a lot more about having a career that was a lot more stable rather than a career where they could go and take risks. Uh, and, and that might end up being a career where 
they might not be super passionate about it, but they would prefer the stability of it over whatever they're passionate about. So first thing to acknowledge, just like the way that uh, Asian parents think about it is a lot different. Uh, it's not necessarily wrong. Um, I think definitely I'm very privileged to be able to take a lot of risks and explore a lot of passions because of uh, the foundation that my parents had set. Um, there's definitely positives that I took away from uh, the way that my parents thought about things as well. So I think one of the things that I really care about for my career uh, is, is a lot around legacy. So in the same way that my parents uh, laid a better foundation and, and left a lot behind for me that they might not uh, take rewards from, um, I want to do the same thing with whatever company we start. So one of our values is give more than you take, uh, which basically means like, you know, we want to leave the world behind it, uh, in a better place than when we started with it. Yeah, I think that's important. A lot of like my parents are also first uh, generation immigrants as well. And just kind of the influences around stability. I think they try to press that onto you yeah. um, in a way just because like they, they're used to that narrative. And obviously, it, it, it's funny when I kind of look back at this because uh, a lot of the um, immigrant parents that I know, they don't really work regular jobs. They're actual entrepreneurs. They run their own businesses and do their own thing. And it's kind of weird when we have that kind of other philosophy saying, find a job, do this kind of thing. I, I, I just, it's been like recent years when I just started realizing this. It's like, wait a second, guys, you're entrepreneurs and now I'm, I'm working kind of a job kind of thing. Like, where, where's the disconnect here? But, um, you know, what would you maybe say to individuals, say, within the Asian community um, that are maybe possibly struggling with this and pursuing, say, a passion towards entrepreneurship and maybe have that kind of overarching influence of do this career and that kind of thing. How would you say approach that situation and being more confident in making and taking that risk? Yeah, I, I can distinctly remember in college just going through basically this this onion of disillusionment where uh, I just had multiple conversations with my parents and all of the things that uh, I agreed on what I wanted to do with my career ended up being more and more risky until it got to a point where I was just an entrepreneur and was basically jobless or uh, just like homeless, like I guess for the first two years. Um, I think it started like uh, I wanted to be a doctor and then I didn't want to be a doctor. I actually wanted to be a professor in chemistry and then I didn't want to do chemistry. Instead, I'll be a professor in computer science. And then instead of being a professor, I'll go get a stable job in computer science. And then it kind of ended with entrepreneurship. Right. Um, and so, yeah, going back to what I said originally, uh, the first piece of advice is I, I think there's a tendency to reject the different ways that people think about career. And, and the first step is just acknowledging uh, that, like, you know, they started their career in a completely different time than, than you starting your career. So the first step is just acceptance there. Uh, and understanding where their viewpoint comes from. I think that uh, that erases a lot of the tension that might happen here. Um, the second thing that I would tell people just starting out on their entrepreneurship journey is that the amount of risk that you take is really not as, as great as people think it is, mm -hmm. um, especially if you work in tech, like tech entrepreneurship, uh, and you're starting startups. Um, there is always opportunity to find an extremely well-paying job should your startup not work out. And the relationships and the amount of learning that you get from actually doing that venture will put you way further ahead 
than if you were to just work at like a bigger company. Uh, and so yeah. I think people really overstate the amount of risks that they take actually doing something like this. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like also kind of taking those small steps, whether it's big risk, small risk, whatever it is, yeah. I think uh, I, I really value this concept of increasing your area, uh, surface area for luck. And the more risk you take, obviously, the higher reward uh, kind of principle uh, that goes with it. So I've always been one where, you know, the startup space kind of gives you those opportunities where in a corporate corporate environment, you really can't take those leaps, uh, I would say. So uh, definitely whenever I have a friend that comes to me and say, hey, what, what step should I take next? Uh, should it be that corporate leap or that startup leap? I actually talked to a, a friend recently just about this last week. He's like, I have two offers. One at like a you know public company, pretty typical kind of thing. One at a, a startup. Um, and I, I just told him like, look at the pros and cons of where you want to kind of go in your career. And all of them kind of pointed out to him being someone who would probably match a startup uh, environment. And so we just had it a, a chatted about it and he kind of took that step and now it's week one and he's like holy shit there's like no structure no nothing and all that kind of thing but um, i'm like you'll you'll start enjoying it because you're going to have a lot of influence within the organization and you'll get a, a lot of chances to learn so i think startup in overall i think it's very valuable from an experience standpoint yeah i completely agree <laughs> uh it is definitely way messier than a big company yeah I think depending on your personality, you either find that um, something to worry about or something quite exciting. For sure. For sure. For sure. So kind of like going into the startup world, um, we all know that you're a founder and you're leading a team at Rudder. Uh, But before we get into kind of the concept of Rudder and what you're building, one thing I want to understand is, you know, it can be quite intimidating running a company, especially for someone in their early 20s, mid 20s. And so how have you been able to kind of overcome some of the noise that, you know, say externally maybe saying, hey, you're too young to lead this company. You don't have enough experience to do this. Like, where is your mindset when it comes to those kind of things? Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, I I love this question. Um, So I would say like, yeah, to, to say that no one has ever said, oh, man, like you're 24. Are you sure you're capable of running this? To say that I've never heard of that would would just be lying. I've, I've definitely heard of that many times. I, I think that um, two, two thoughts on this. So the first is that there, there's pros and cons for being older or being more experienced. Uh, the pro is that you've seen you've seen this before. You can pattern match and, and have a better idea of what to do. Uh, the con is that a lot of what could be really interesting opportunities are kind of invisible to you now because you've had a lot of experience in some area or, or doing this before. And so you, you have a set way on how to do it. Um, and so being young and inexperienced isn't always a bad thing. Um, now, definitely there's a lot to learn from people with more experience. And so, um, you know, what I do to ensure that I I do get that experienced opinion. I work with a bunch of advisors. Uh, I have a lot of close friends that are maybe a couple of stages ahead of us on the startup journey that I talk to regularly. Um, And yeah, I'm I'm just always open to feedback from the team, our board, uh, my mentors, et cetera, on how I can continuously be better. Yeah, and I think you bring up an important concept there is like accepting feedback. 
a lot of people, you know, there's different personalities accept feedback in different ways. What is your method of kind of taking feedback and kind of making it into a constructive thing where you kind of improve on who you are as a leader, but also implementing some of those things within an organization? Yeah. Um, so the first, just on how I, how I like receiving feedback, um, this might change as I, as I get older, uh, but definitely at this point, I very much prefer receiving brutal feedback only. So I don't, I don't appreciate when people, uh, you know, soften their words or anything. If there's constructive feedback to give, I'm only here to hear that. Uh, and so definitely wanting to hear as much constructive feedback as possible. Uh, the other thing that I tell our team is that I always appreciate when the feedback is actionable. So just saying something and not having a next step on how I can improve on that, I find not as helpful. Um, if you give me feedback in a way where this is what I think you did wrong and this is what I think you should do to improve, that is the best feedback uh, for me. Um, and then how that applies to the rest of the organization. Uh, we're very open on the mistakes that the founders and the leadership team make to the entire company to show one, like we're humble and we're open to receiving feedback. And then also to like, you're in good hands. Leadership is growing along with the rest of the company. You know, what's funny. Um, I actually chatted to a couple of Gen Z's recently in kind of leadership positions. They're very much similar in the fact that they're just like, yo, just be blunt with me. And like, yeah, it's like be straight up. Cause like, I don't want like that kind of sugar coated feedback like yeah you're doing well but you know maybe improve on this no like you're shit and doing this and kind of improve on this kind of thing i've seen that i don't know is it is it like maybe a generational thing as well because i feel like gen z's are pretty like straightforward like just tell me how it is <laughs> i don't think it's a generational thing so what i've heard from uh, a lot of people that are a lot more experienced than me is that eventually that starts to wear and tear on you right yeah, yeah hearing negative criticism uh, constantly is, is probably not the best thing for mental health. Um, and so I, I think of it more as an experience thing where right now we're, we're fresh and, and young enough where we mm -hmm. can just hear negative feedback. Right. You know, maybe in the future we'd prefer negative and positive. But I think right now while we can take it, we should do it. Yeah. I mean, spoken like a seasoned uh, leader already. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> uh, that's awesome, man. And, you know, speaking of being uh, a young leader, what has been like the biggest challenge for you um, in making that transition over to a CEO and building a strong culture within the company? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So biggest challenge on being a CEO, uh, I guess personal challenge is, is really delegation. So I think that in the last couple of months, having built out the team, uh, my job has turned a lot has has transformed a lot more from being an individual contributor to empowering other people to be individual contributors. Uh, I think what has been particularly hard about that is that I really love getting my hands dirty. Um, and what I, what I end up learning is that a lot of times as the leader, um, it's a lot more helpful for the company to empower other people and keep other people in touch uh, instead of you actually getting your hands dirty. And so making that transition has been something that uh, I'm getting used to. Um, I think on how you build culture in the organization uh, as a leader, a, a lot of it is leading by example. And so like having good value, having good values, uh, values that are disagreeable, that you stand by and then acting on those values and showing the rest of the company that 
you you stand by those values. I think that's leading by example is the most important. Yeah, and, and that's powerful because I feel like you've kind of pivoted, which in terms of your personal kind of style of how you manage and become a leader. And that kind of brings me to my next point of actually building out Rudder and this whole experience that you went through and actually referenced um, that Twitter thread you had early on of kind of that experience and that what you refer to as pivot hell. Uh Um, And so, you know, can you kind of describe to us what that journey was like, um, how you were able to kind of evaluate those failures and create that into structured learning? Yeah, yeah. So long story short, it was not fun. Um, I, I think one of the one of the guiding quotes uh, throughout that journey comes from Spencer uh, Skates at Amplitude. Uh, I think Amplitude had a very similar journey where they started, uh, I think, as a mobile app, and then and then ended up doing um, uh, analytics infrastructure. But what Spencer basically said is, when you decide to start a company, just commit and commit to starting something for two years, uh, and just promise yourself that you won't give up for two years. And if you can survive that entire two-year journey, something will happen. Uh, and so thinking back to our journey, which was around two years, that, that ended up being uh, entirely true. Um, just like a brief overview on the journey. So me and my co-founder, Eric, uh, we graduated Yale class of 2019. And so around three years ago, um, immediately went through YC as part of their summer 19 program right after graduation. I think we were the last in-person batch. Uh, Back then, we were actually building a company called Lang. Uh, And so Eric and I had both previously worked at Facebook, and they have internal infrastructure dedicated to translating Facebook's website, Instagram, uh, Facebook's mobile app, etc., into different foreign languages. Uh, And so having worked very closely with that, it was really interesting to us on whether we could bring that as a standalone service or not. So taking this internal tool used at Facebook and just selling it as its own service. Um, that ended up not working out. Uh, a lot of hard lessons on how to run go to market uh, through that. We ended up uh, raising a seed round uh, late 2019, pivoted away from laying at the end of 2019, And then if you imagine 2020, I think February 2020 is when uh, COVID just got started. Uh, Eric and I basically spent that entire year in a two bedroom together, working away on projects that ended up not working out. Uh, So it was it was a really hard time for sure. Um, I'm happy to dig into any of the individual projects, but the last thing that we did uh, before starting Rudder ended up being an ed tech. Uh, And so we ended up working with a lot of edtech vendors who were selling books and subscription kits and learning materials online. And their sales were going through the roof because um, at-home learning and mm-hmm. micropods were becoming a thing because right. of COVID. Uh, and so they were figuring out how to try and sell their goods on the different channels that uh, you could sell and marketplaces that you could sell stuff on. So listing their Shopify catalog onto Amazon or onto eBay or onto Etsy. Uh, and so... By building products for those edtech vendors, we ended up realizing that as engineers, we just spent all of our time building that inventory or category uh, catalog management product. Uh, we spent all of the time on it, just building the integrations out and sort of put our head up, looked at the rest of the landscape and realized that that integration infrastructure would be super valuable to anyone building tools for commerce. Right. Uh, and so 
decided to focus on that tool. So like the meta problem instead of building products for vendors. Uh, and, and that's how we ended up with what we have today. Yeah. What I maybe want to double click on there is throughout this entire two year process, at what point or like what kind of teachings specifically around building a business, for example, how did you kind of learn like an ideal customer profile is unique to this business or those kind of say macro level things, what makes a business tick? Uh, what were the kind of those key kind of moments throughout this two year process where you're like, okay, I've evaluated X, Y, Z, and this is as a result, Rudder makes a lot of sense for the market uh, right now. So what were those kind of key kind of variables that you thought make a good business? Yeah. Um, I think that, I think that every business, obviously like there has to be people willing to buy the product. Also, uh, just quick, like side note, I will never talk about consumer businesses. I do not understand consumer. So this is B2B only, uh, I will never build a consumer app or consumer facing product ever. Um, a lot of B2B, it's, it's more straightforward because you sell to businesses and those businesses have actual problems and they basically pay you to solve their problem. And so a good business in that space means that you're able to solve uh, the similar or the same problem experienced by many other businesses. Uh, and so it's, it's a lot more straightforward there. I, I think that um, a lot of it, I wouldn't say it's intuitive. It's more like a lot of the work that we ended up doing in those two years ended up be focusing on uh, our customer research and, and figuring out how to speed up that iteration cycle of talking to customers, getting research on whether that product was solving a pain point or not, uh, and then going back with that data and iterating on either the value proposition or the potential product that we would build. Um, and so just figuring out like a better framework for having customer conversations asking the right questions. So not asking leading questions that push the customer towards using your product. Um, and then figuring out how to interpret the feedback given across multiple conversations. That's what we ended up spending most of our time pivoting on. Got it. And yeah, I think that's really important because you've kind of deconstructed it in a way. Um, one of the things that most technical founders struggle with, uh, especially is sales. So I actually want to kind of go into that in kind of throughout this whole journey, we haven't talked about sales. And I think that's the most like kind of intimidating thing is going out there and actually, you know, you can have the best product in the fucking world, but if you can't sell or kind of sell that value, it's not going anywhere. Um, so how did you learn about sales uh, and kind of getting those first customers? And how have you iterated, say, your personal journey in sales uh, to become, you know, one, the founder, kind of selling that entire value prop of the organization? but two, maybe building a team around that too, because hiring for sales individuals is unique in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think the first thing is uh, you, you mentioned like without good sales, you could build the best product in the world and you still wouldn't be able to sell it. Um, if you did build the best product in the world, I think you'd have a shot, even if you were a, an awful salesperson. The hard part there is figuring out what that product is. Uh, and so definitely Eric and I were no strangers to uh, one of the most common like technical founder traps of, of building before selling. Um, it is certainly not true that if you build it, they will come. Uh, and so 
we spent the first year and in every single iteration that uh, every, every single product idea or pivot that we did in that first year, we'd always spent a month beforehand building out the entire product, um, making sure it had all the bells and whistles that we were imagining in our head, uh, our users wanted, and then going and selling that product, realizing they didn't even care about the bells and whistles. They actually just didn't care about the product itself. Uh, getting super depressed, going back to the drawing board, and then doing that process over and over again. Uh, so the first thing, the most important lesson there is is sell before you build. Mm, uh, yeah. You want to make sure that people want the product that you are thinking about before you actually spend time building it. Engineering is the most time-intensive and resource-intensive thing you can do. Would you say... Um to kind of build that kind of sales funnel and kind of the initial lead, just build a initial MVP um, and then just garner interest feedback and then kind of build out like a full scope solution. So when we actually started Rudder, um, we, we actually ended up working with a sales coach uh, called ramped, which to this day, uh, probably the most, valuable thing that we did on on figuring out how to build a company in, in, mm -hmm. in the two years that we were pivoting. Um, when we started selling Rudder, we actually sold it entirely off of API docs and slide decks. So okay. hidden to the customers that we were selling to, uh, we actually didn't have a real MVP or a real product. Okay. We were just selling API documentation. Uh, and the easy part is engineering. So once Got we signed it. a contract and set a committed onboarding date, it was very easy for Eric and I to do everything we could to work night and day to ensure that the MVP came out. Got it. Okay. So you kind of kind of took the say end, almost like the end product, and then you can conceptualize it when you understood what the ask was. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. Got we, it. we did not build an MVP to start. We had okay. uh, only documentation. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. You know, I'm kind of impressed by that in terms of, you know, your ability to really understand where you're at currently and kind of evolve over time. And I think that's what makes you a very unique founder. Um, you know, founders need to evolve and kind of develop their skill sets. So, you know, kudos to you on kind of, you know, taking all those experiences, all that feedback and really kind of owning your skills, uh, you know, up to towards now. And obviously, you're constantly learning. So there's probably going to be a bunch of roadblocks that come uh, in startup world. Of course, it's going to be a thing. But, uh, you know, that's that's awesome. And so really impressed with that. And so let's let's actually go into what Rudder is actually building now. Um, and so, you know, you're backed by um, investors such as A16Z. So very well known. And so before we get into kind of the details of the fundraise, what does Rudder do? And how does it help teams accomplish their that specific problem? Yeah. So I think the TLDR uh, of what Rudder does is we do data infrastructure for commerce platforms. Um, if you're very deep in engineering and financial services, the closest analogy would be a company called Plaid. Uh, and so the problem that we solve um, for any business that sells to merchants or SMBs, uh, in order for that business uh, let's say uh, a lender or a shipping and fulfillment company or a drop shipper or an email marketing company uh, to actually work with an SMB or a merchant, you need to interact with the data that that merchant or SMB has. Uh, and that data exists on an accounting platform, a storefront, a payment processor, and so on. And 
there are so many different platforms in those categories, and each one has their own API and way to interpret the data and way to read and write data. Um, and so what Rudder does is we built uh, basically this middleware where it's a single integration and a single schema for reading and writing data across any storefront payment processor or accounting platform. That way, you as the company that sells to merchants and SMBs, you don't have to build all these in different integrations into all of the different business systems that your SMBs use. You can just integrate once with Rudder and be able to support any commerce platform or accounting platform out there. No, that's 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 so cool because I think data integration kind of, I, I like to call it like that single source of truth and kind of evaluating it. It's so important because I've seen so many siloed systems and then trying to structure that in a way where it's digestible and actionable is so damn hard. Um, so, you know, you kind of being that middleware and kind of that backend infrastructure of combining all these things, I think it's so important, especially with e-commerce significantly growing uh, and continues to grow. I think the use for your platform is obviously going to be uh, very important. Um, and so one of the things I'd love to understand before we get into how you went into fundraising is your approach to marketing because it's B2B, right? So it's not B2C, you know, B2C, we invest a lot in marketing and, you know, we see the traditional inbound and kind of uh, that kind of channel. What's your team's approach to uh, say B2B marketing and um, how have you maybe evolved that uh, over time? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I think David, our, our growth and marketing lead, is much better suited to answering that, but I'll yeah, give yeah. it a shot. Um, I, I, my understanding is that uh, B2B marketing is not so different from B2C marketing. It's more just what kind of content. I, I think marketing really comes down to, uh, for the set of customers that you know have this problem, what are the things that they want to hear or the things that they want to know about and what are the channels that they live on and how do you go reach out and, and find those customers? Uh, and so very similar to B2C marketing, but the difference being the types of content that you push out and the channels that you engage your audience on. Uh, and so we're a lot more focused on Twitter uh, and LinkedIn uh, and other B2B channels instead of like Facebook ads or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, or like an Instagram kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, that, that makes sense because I always get this question. I'm like, I'm not a marketer, so uh, I have a hard time to kind of sometimes expressing. I, I usually just say B2B is usually outbound. The other other side's inbound. So kind of think of it from that standpoint. I'm not more, no marketing expert. So I, that's why I always ask the founder and kind of put them on the spot uh, related to that question. Yeah, I, I would not say I'm a anything. I, I think the most important thing is just getting started. Like at the end of the day, marketing is just... Um, letting people know that for a problem that they have that you exist. Uh, and so like everything around marketing stems from that initial uh, uh, objective. Uh, right. And so th there's no silver bullet to it. It's a lot of content. It's a lot of awareness. Um, yeah. Th I don't yeah. think there's like, you can get started without 10 years of experience in marketing. Yeah. And just with any other like kind of function, it's a lot about experimentation um, yep. and trying to figure out, what works, what doesn't, and then you never know. Even in your vertical, something might it can be completely different from you know another B two B company, right? So experimentation plays a huge role. Um, okay, let's get into the fun facts around fundraising. I think a lot of founders uh, get asked this question of like, how 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 do you approach uh, kind of the fundraising, and what was your kind of uh, I'd say what that word I'm looking for that special sauce uh, to kind of 
go out there and make sure that you pitch the value of what Rudder does. So what was your approach? Kind of walk us through the story of that recent fundraise that you've done with Rudder um, and maybe how you came across also A16Z. Yeah, um, I would say that our approach to fundraising was pretty hands-off. So I don't know if this is an unpopular opinion, but my opinion would be that it's a lot more important to spend time actually building the product, getting revenue and getting customers than it is to spend time fundraising. (laughs) And if you're able to do the former, then the latter will be very easy. Uh, And so I I find a lot of people uh, that I talk to spend more time than I would uh, on fundraising when I really think it's all about, at the end of the day, building the best product. Um, So my approach to fundraising was pretty hands-off. I think uh, most people that we ended up engaging for our fundraising process ended up reaching out to us. Um, And sorry, what were the other questions? Uh, So basically how you kind of met uh, A16Z and... Ah. you know, how, how'd you get a feel for some of the investors that you wanted to work with? Yeah, yeah. So we we ended up, uh, we raised our Series A uh, in the first quarter of 2022. And we ended up chatting with Christina um, probably late 2021. I, I remember there was a time where I went home. So uh, I grew up in Jersey my entire life uh, and went back home for the holidays. So I was there for Thanksgiving to celebrate with my parents and then decided just to work there until New Year's. Uh, and I think in that month and a half, sort of going half off the grid, um, it, it definitely caused a lot of activity in the investing world where everyone was like, what is Rudder up to? Like, why why is this uh, founder like not responding or uh, not available to take calls? Like is something going on there? Uh, and so I think unintentionally, we created a lot of buzz just being home, spending time with family. Um, I ended up talking to Christina uh, late 2021. We actually had a conversation with A16Z right when we started Rudder, actually. So we had zero customers and we're just ideating. Uh, And so uh, funny how that ended up working out. Ultimately, picking uh, a, a lead and picking a board member to join us. I think this is probably not new, but Many people have described it as a marriage. That's like absolutely right. For the entire life of the company, that that person will be with you. Uh, and so what we ended up caring about is really how much they understood the longer term vision and how much they resonated with that. Um, and so, yeah, Christina ended up being fantastic. Uh, she really understood, one, what we were doing right now, and then two, where we wanted to go longer term. Yeah, and I think that's so important, like the value add. It's it's not just a decision, like capital itself is a commodity. It's kind of available anywhere. It's really kind of finding that strategic person that can maybe level you up from, say, it's a hiring perspective or from a strategic perspective. Um, and I feel like sometimes people get into that whole kind of fundraising activity as only raising money. It There's a lot more that goes into it. And I feel like you found the kind of perfect fit for your organization, who's someone who understood your problem, the long-term vision, and also was able to add value in several different areas. So, you know, I, I find that super important. And obviously, as a young founder, you've already kind of learned those things. Usually it takes one or two rounds for people to make mistakes uh, such as that. So uh, maybe something along those lines, obviously, maybe you haven't made the mistake around fundraising is it, you probably heard stories. But what are some common mistakes that you feel like founders 
make when it comes to fundraising activities and how can they avoid those? Mm. The most common mistake, in my opinion, is people thinking that fundraising is sort of the, the cure-all to all problems that they have. Um, the, the hardest problem in the early day in the early days as a company is finding product market fit. And my opinion is that no amount of money uh, will enable you to figure that out faster. Uh, and so I would, a lot of founders who haven't fully found product market fit, I would uh, probably tell them to work a lot more on product and customer research first. And then actually, uh, if, if those people find that fundraising is really hard, it actually counterintuitively ends up being way easier once you have product market fit. And so doing, doing fundraising in the order of operations where you don't start by talking to investors ends up making the fundraising a lot easier. Got it. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100% on that point. And uh, yeah, I think so many people just think like money in is going to be solving all my problems. I mean, it gives you runway for sure. But if your product sucks, you're going to have to raise another round because, you know, you're going to burn and experiment and all that kind of stuff. So I uh, totally agree with you on that point. Um, so kind of let's let's make the shift out of, say, the business side of things. And we alluded to this earlier around mental health. So you said feedback and obviously getting shitted on, quote unquote, uh, is not going to be good for your long term mental health. So, you know, as a founder, we we all know that it's a very hard role and there's a lot of hardships that come with it. So what what is your approach uh, towards, say, a healthy mental kind of framework and how have you prioritized that uh, being a busy founder? Yeah, um, it's definitely a hard job. Uh, there's a ton of criticism. Uh, there are always fires going on. I would also say it's a very lonely job. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you're the founder, there are very few that can actually empathize with all of the challenges that you face. Uh, and so a couple of things that I do here. Uh, one is that I, I, I believe strongly that physical health is very closely tied with mental health. And so mm-hmm. making sure that you're eating well, you're exercising, I find to be super helpful. Um, to combat like loneliness or this feeling of isolation, it's really important to have a good support system. So uh, definitely keep in touch with a lot of other founders that are at our stage or, or later um, and use them as, as, as a sounding board for a lot of challenges that we have. Um, and then I guess the last thing is having self-awareness and being able to set boundaries. So taking a day off if you feel burned out or uh, telling people like, you know, maybe now is not the right time to talk about this. Let's discuss this later. Uh, and then having self-awareness to, to be able to grow. Uh, so I have an exec coach. Uh, they've been super helpful. Um, yeah, I would say those are the three things. Got it. And at any point in time, is there any mentor that you feel like that you've become really close to? Um, and maybe how have they influenced your journey in entrepreneurship uh, in a positive manner? Yeah. Um, so first shout out to Justin Kahn. So uh, he, he was definitely someone in college that I, I looked up to a lot that was a huge influence on me actually starting uh, my entrepreneurship journey. Mm. Uh, so I, I ended up working as an intern at Atrium for the first seven, seven months of, I think, 2018. Okay. Uh, and so I think Atrium, which was Justin's uh, legal tech venture, I think was like eight months when I joined and I got to see it go uh, from, I think, like 40 people to like 100 people. 
it was it was an amazing experience. Uh, so definitely Justin was someone that I looked up to a lot uh, as a mentor and as um, uh, someone that was a couple of steps ahead of me that I could learn a lot from. Uh, and then there, there were a bunch of people in college uh, that were a year or two above me that also ended up uh, starting companies. So okay. uh, Derek Lowe from Medallion and then Kevin Tan from SnackPass. Um, those people I would say are a lot closer day to day uh, and, and like, yeah, definitely get a lot of advice on, on scaling a company from them. Yeah. And I feel like founders usually resonate with founders and it's always good to have that circle. Um, and it's, it's cool. Like any cool Justin Khan stories, uh, you know, he, 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 he has a unique personality. So if you've had any cool interactions with him, any highlight from that? <laughs> um, oh man, uh, did not get clearance from Justin to, to <laughs> say these. I, I, I think the the coolest story is definitely uh, the way that I got into the door. So uh, I remember back at that time, uh, Justin was huge on Snapchat. So he'd always post these uh, fitness snaps. Okay. Uh, to start with, what up snaps? Uh, fitness is the first step to greatness. Uh, there was one snap that he posted about hiring at Atrium. And that's, that's how oh, I okay. ended up uh, reaching out to him. Wow. Okay. Um, I think the thing that I admire the most about Justin is that his entire career, he's been starting venture after venture. Right. And right. not all of them have been successful. Yeah. But what I really admire is is the tenacity and his, he just has some chip on his shoulder that causes him to keep starting companies. And, and that's what I really admire about him. Yeah. No, I find his whole journey pretty interesting. Kind of, he almost like was a content guy at first, translated that into Twitch then once Twitch was sold to, I think it was Amazon, um, he obviously started Atrium and now he's in the Web3 space. So I found that transition and him being able to kind of find trends really powerful. Uh, but it's also that, like you mentioned, that tenacity to kind of also sell a story. I find that really powerful in him. His storytelling is one of the things that are kind of something I kind of attribute to is like that's him really being kind of powerful in the sense of he can sell anything essentially. Uh, and so that, that's really cool. And hopefully you've gotten some pointers on some storytelling and stuff like that. That'd be interesting. We can maybe get that into another conversation another day uh, on his uh, approach to that. But yeah, Justin's you know, an amazing storyteller. Yeah, 100%. for sure. For sure. Um, kind of going off of that thought of like future sense and kind of time uh, frameworks. Uh, let's think about the next five to 10 years. Um, so let's get philosophical for a bit, right? So, um, you know, what industries or innovation uh, could be a tool or kind of tech, uh, something along those lines, excites you the most when it comes to, say, a wealth creation opportunity? Yeah, I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't say commerce to start. That's, yeah, that's definitely yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things that we see where um, there, there's basically this explosion of merchant and SMB tooling coming out and, and that's a lot what of what makes rudder successful um healthcare is a huge one so i think uh telehealth is is this interesting new trend that's popped up in the last couple of years or or i guess i mean it's existed well, well before that but um uh I, I just think a lot of healthcare infrastructure will change drastically right. in the next couple of years uh and then the last one and then probably the most excited about is climate change. So I think mm. as a society, we're, we're starting to realize that uh, if we don't do something about this, we are fucked. Yeah. Uh, and actually incentivizing people to uh, uh, help out with climate change, I think, 
will be a massive opportunity in the next five to 10 years. Cool. And I've gotten similar responses. Uh, Some say AI, obviously kind of true AI, not like (laughs) what AI we have today um, as being another opportunity. I find nobody says Web3, oddly enough, maybe because it's so often told like that's the next thing. Uh, But I guess it's still early days uh, with Web3. There's a lot of noise, I feel like, in Web3. I think there are some uh, uh, blockchain products that end up being super valuable. I'm really excited by a lot of the financial products. Um, I think it's definitely very, very early days right now. Yeah. And I feel like the infrastructure plays are the ones that are going to be successful early on versus all these shit coins that are out there and so-called <laughs> projects. But yeah, that Web3 is a funny little space to be in. Um, kind of going along those lines, do you ever see yourself kind of becoming like an angel investor? Let's say, for example, one day Rudder gets acquired for $100 billion. Let's just put a magic number out there. Um, and you're the super rich guy now. You have some time on your hands. You know, you've gone to vacationing, but you want to stay busy and active. Do you ever see yourself doing that? Honestly, probably not. I, I, I do consider myself very much uh, a hundred or zero person. And so if I do decide I want to invest, uh, might as well do that just completely full time. Uh, and if I decide that I want to focus on something else, I'll just do that. Uh, and so given that I imagine working at Rudder uh, and building Rudder out for the next five to 10 years, I probably won't angel invest. Got it. No, that makes sense. And that's fair. Um, and so... You know, you, you mentioned like wealth creation opportunities, climate change, maybe, you know, if we don't solve it, we're kind of fucked. Um, what we also see in society nowadays is that wealth gap that continues to grow. Um, and, you know, the quality of life is kind of diminishing over time. And that kind of, you know, in my eyes, when I went to San Fran and just came across the tenderloin, I've never seen something like that personally uh, in Toronto, but I guess over time it's gotten worse. So, any thoughts on how we potentially address this or just kind of your critical thinking around this whole idea of the wealth gap and maybe why it exists and maybe how we can alleviate some of it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I, I think uh, first thing I'd point to is, is stuff like UBI uh, and just increasing the bar mm. for everybody across the right. board. I ultimately think that the root cause, if I had to look back at my own journey, the, the only reason that uh, I'm able to do what I do is, uh, is that I have good education uh, and an opportunity to do it. And so um, I would focus a lot more on affordable education. Mm-hmm. I, I think that would end up solving the root cause rather than just handing a stipend out to everybody. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I think creating equal opportunities uh, for maybe those disadvantaged communities um, definitely is an avenue and access to cheaper education. America has a huge problem with uh, education being really expensive. I mean, we sometimes the Canadians complain about it. But uh, when I see some of the prices that are in the US, I'm just like, America has it the worst. Yeah, Yeah. it's just like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like, come on. And I think that's, that's a entire podcast on its own of the American schooling system and where that's headed. So um, yeah, man, Peter, that's the bulk of the podcast there. Um, So one thing I'd love to kind of end off the podcast is a little lightning round to get to know you a little Let's bit better. So um, it's four questions, very easy. Uh, so you'll have like, you know, just a couple seconds to answer each one. All right. All right. Let's go for it. Uh, so first one, favorite book of all time. Um, 
either three body problems. So the three body okay. trilogy, it's a lot of hard sci-fi. Um, okay. Okay. I don't usually read history, but uh, dream machine ends up sticking out to me. Uh, it talks about like the, the beginnings of the internet, basically. Um, Interesting. A bit of a slower start, I would say, but then the second half of the book ends up being completely crazy. Got uh, it. So, yeah. It's probably a tie between those two. Okay, cool. I'll take a look at the dream machine one for sure. Um, if you had the chance or if you had dinner with one person dead or alive, any point in time, who would that be? Yeah, I think I, I think most people would say some celebrity or, or someone that's super famous. Um, I think having like a deeper connection or, or building on existing connections is more important to me than just meeting mm -hmm. a ton of people. So it'd probably be my parents. Nice. Nice. Sentimental answer is always a valuable one for sure. Um, outside of Rudder, uh, what company excites you the most? Ooh, if you ask me this question uh, a week from now, the answer is probably different. Okay. Uh, but okay. <laughs> it, it's definitely changing. I think there's a ton of exciting companies coming out right now. Um, the one that I would give right now is probably this company called Column. Okay. Uh, so I've heard of them. Yeah. One of the older co-founders of of Plaid, Will Hockey, he ended up starting this company called Column. It's a, a developer-centric bank. So yeah. he actually bought a bank and then built APIs on top of it or made it API first. Um, yeah, that, that no. company is amazing. Interesting. I didn't know he actually bought the bank. So I, I thought he just kind of created that infrastructure on its own. Uh, that's pretty cool. Um, and the last question, controversial, but we have to ask it. Do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yeah, sure. Why not? I, I think people should enjoy whatever they want. Yeah, I mean, I'm a hard no guy on the pineapple side. <laughs> I of know. Uh, I just don't think fruit belongs on pizza. Um, let's not get into the debate that tomatoes are fruit too. But you know, pineapple, it's just a hard no for me. I don't know. Um, my my buddy, the, uh, my co-host, he's like, I need pineapple on every pizza I eat. So it's just like we have this jab and battle every time about this. I mean, we can debate on whether you call that pizza. If there's pineapples on it, but if it's good, if it tastes good, it's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Peter, that's kind of the wrapping up of the podcast. Um, any way uh, individuals can reach out to you and maybe any last thoughts? Um, yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was, this was awesome. Let's do this again sometime. Um, I'm always open to uh, any questions if you're a founder getting started or if you have issues with data infrastructure for commerce that we can help out with. Uh, you can contact me, uh, peter at rudderapi.com, uh, R-U-T-T-E-R-A-P-I.com.